Welcome to this edition of Leaders in Focus. We'll be speaking to Katie Sadler, CEO of the Commonwealth Games Federation. She'll tell us how a beleaguered organisation is responding to critics who say it's no longer relevant. We had a Birmingham Commonwealth Games just around the corner and that really blew people out of the park. Even some of the skeptical media were absolutely excited about the games. And how to rethink sports leadership through a women's lens. I had significant unconscious bias about women in leadership. Like the world, according to Katie Sadler's career, was not the same as the world for everyone else. And she'll tell us how she manages up, manages down, and manages day to day. What you see is what you get here. I don't, I don't become different. I'm open, I'm honest. Values are really important to me. So, Katie, welcome to Leaders in Focus. 2023, quite a busy year. How do you reflect on the year of 2023? Well, you know, it started off with a, uh, um, a really fast pace. We were in the process of uh, developing a new strategic plan, which we launched in June. So a lot of talking to people about their aspirations and their, their excitement. And, and we also you know, had a youth games, which was incredibly exciting. You know, and we had, uh, um, I think, 70 of our members participated in the games in Trinidad and Tobago. And that was, you know, with, with 12 months run in, the Trinidad and Tobago Commonwealth Games Association did a brilliant job. And then, of course, we had, um, you know, not so happy, the sort of situation on July 17th, where, you know, is the situation that I'm currently dealing with when, when the state of Victoria decided to not um, host the Commonwealth Games in 2026. So highs and lows, it was a mixed year. Thinking about some of those biggest challenges, and I'm, you know, assuming July was July one. 17th, yeah. <laughs> um, how do you as a leader deal with a moment like that? You know, I'm really interested in how you kicked into action in a leadership role when that happened and what you did next. Well, it'd be fair to say um, it was not expected. So, you know, you know, every now and then when you have to deal with tough decisions and things that are, that, that are coming up that, you know, that you have to actually manage in a really delicate way, you kind of develop a plan for it because you know it's coming. Um, this was not one of those moments. And so, so literally, you know, I guess on the 17th of July, when we were visited by the, the state of Victoria to come in and pass on that news, it was such a total shock. It was you know, Dame Louise Martin, our past president and myself. And it wasn't even so much the news, it, which was quite like, wow, where did this come from? Because we were both board members um, on yeah. Victoria Organising Committee. Um, it was the fact that we had eight hours notice uh, of which to tell all our stakeholders what was going on and to try and regroup and get ourselves on top of what was an incredibly difficult situation. And, uh, you know, we're, we're an organisation that's a, uh, almost 100 years old and I would say that this is probably one of those moments in that um, 100 years which... Um, certainly was unexpected. So I, I guess in a, any of those situations, I, I, I guess you sort of stop. And I remember sort of sitting in a room in our offices in, in, um, in Westminster and just sort of saying, OK, I've heard, we've heard you. I suggest now that, that you go away. You've delivered your message. I need to regroup and work out how I, A, make sure that the family of the Commonwealth is uh, really well briefed as quickly as possible. We don't want them to wake up in the morning and, and have board members saying what on earth is going on. So kind of the, the kind of emergency board meetings and understand your stakeholder comms. And then um, how do we pivot as quickly as possible to come up with a solution which is in the best interest of the athletes in particular and then you know, the other wider stakeholders in a reasonably short period of time. 
So very unprecedented. So it certainly wasn't something, I think someone at some stage said to me, do you not have plan B? And I said, no, I don't think many people would have had plan B for that. Um, so, you know, being as, as positive and focused as you can, getting the right people around you as quickly as possible and starting to map out what does this mean for you as an organization over the next three months to actually start working through some solutions. And in that immediate regrouping, is that just you writing down a call list, a list of Zooms you need to be on, people you need to, as you say, brief? Because there's, there's an internal communications part amongst yep. your membership. And then, of course, there's the public yep. commentary that... Uh, Narrative. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, what did Trying that actually that. look like in the moment? Well, I mean, I think what our stakeholder engagement is absolutely vital for any leader in, in terms of really understanding who are the people that add value to what it is that you're trying to do and who are the people that you need to protect in situations like this. And I think it was one of the first things when I, you know, I've been on in, in this role now for just over two years. It does seem like a lot longer after the last year, but just over two years. And within the first three months, the first thing that I put in place was a stakeholder audit of what, of who were our stakeholders? What did they really think about what we were doing? Where did they, what was their vision for where we go? And so I had a reasonably good map about, you know, the people that we needed to engage with. But it was just like that. I mean, so, so literally sitting down and understanding staff, you know, clearly, uh, board, at a, you know, it was the first, the first day was a 24 hour type of exercise. We were having some of these calls um, at, uh, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning because we needed to get on top of what was going to happen in terms of the announcement from the state of Victoria, our international sports federations and our members, and then a wider statement about, you know, we've just received this information. Um, we will be acting at pace as quickly as possible to, to both handle you know what the legal and um, financial implications are for us but also how do we move into solutions mode as quickly as possible with some options but make sure that they understood and that that didn't that was the first 24 hours but I have to say it's been it's taken a huge amount of time um, from from me and uh, from several of our members is constant stakeholder engagement regular briefings all the way through to make sure that people know that um, we're doing everything we can to find a solution stakeholder management is one of those skills if you like that gets talked about a lot when you think about leadership and to me this sounds like a masterclass in stakeholder <laughs> management but you know if, if someone's thinking about future leadership roles what does that mean to you you know what do you think are the key skills that make really great stakeholder management how do you think about it when you reflect on it yeah well, I mean, I guess I sort of started in that area in really early on in my career when I was working in New Zealand sport. And I remember I was looking after all the investment in the national governing bodies and, and particularly in the high performance area as well. And we used to quite often get this, this feedback. So you, you, can, you can work with organizations that you've got lots of incredibly passionate people that, that are working with you in a team and they've all got their agenda and they all, they all want to share it. And they, and, but you get the feedback quite quickly is that you, you can rain on people if you don't do it in a way that actually works for the person who's receiving the information as opposed to what you want to actually say. So yeah. getting that right, I think, is, is absolutely vital. So from my perspective, um, this exercise has been, you know, there's been the stakeholders that are your true, you know, you, you put them in a matrix of, you know, high influential, great relationships, yeah. um, high influential 
not great relationships and how do you actually move those in terms of understanding what it is that you you want to get out of the relationship and what they want to get out of the relationship or partnership and then you know so understanding whether you know who has to own the relationship what is it that you really want to get out of it and then how do you actually move it so it's in a good space but in this because it's so complex and we would we'll talk a little bit more about you know potential solutions for 2026 it's multi it's already around the commonwealth you know 2.7 billion people so it's not just the immediate stakeholders, it's who influences them. And so there's been a huge exercise of, of sort of looking around if, if we were going to get that um, potential opportunity to turn from being a potential opportunity to a real host, who are the people that influence their decision makers? So it's a wider stakeholder engagement. But uh, I think it's, it's vital. I mean, if you don't, I mean, I always tell young people when, when they're starting off in their career, first thing that I would be doing is developing what I call my own personal little black book of the people that you meet that you think might be influential for you at some stage in your career, keep in touch with them. That's your first exercise in, in basic stakeholder engagement. Follow those people, let them follow your career because you never know when you might need them. And almost uniquely perhaps in your world, in your role, that stakeholder management goes right to the top and royalty. It certainly does. Which provides, I would imagine, its own set of protocols, its own challenges. Yep. Uh, how have you found that element of the job, particularly over the last six months? Yeah, well, I mean, our, our patron is, is clearly the king and our vice patron is the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, and the royal family have been huge supporters of, of what we do, regular attenders at Commonwealth Games. Uh, so from that perspective, very highly engaged. Um, so working closely with the, the, the palace and the household to make sure that they are in, yeah, absolutely briefed all the way along on where we're at with coming up with a solution. And, it, and, and, and I guess that the foundations of those great relationships started with our past president, Dame, Dame Louise Martin, who had a, a very close working relationship with um, the Duke of Edinburgh as our vice patient. He's just come back from being with us at the General Assembly in Singapore. So he's been mingling with our stakeholders as well and, and hearing what their, their, um, their, the challenges, the real challenges. So really briefing the royal family, but it's not just the royal family when it comes to the Commonwealth. So there's, there's governments around the, around the Commonwealth, but it is also the Commonwealth Secretariat. And, you know, I've had a couple of briefings with um, the Secretary General, Patricia Scotland, to just talk about how they and their wider Commonwealth movement can work with us to secure a, um, a solution for 2026. Let's talk solutions. Uh, where are you at in terms of 2026? Well, it would be fair to say we're not there yet. We are not there yet. But what I can say to you is that we have been working tirelessly across our membership to work with people who initially, I mean, you know, it was re we were really encouraged when the announcement came out. You know, people talk about the Commonwealth Games and the Commonwealth Movement as being very much a family, a Commonwealth family. The number of hands that went up and said, pick me. You know, very enthusiastic mayors or, or countries that said it's our turn. So that was really, really exciting. Now, some of those, that was just the reaction. You know, it was, it was great to see that kind of level of support, but understanding what's behind that and what's real and what's not real. You know, it takes a lot to host a Commonwealth Games. So what we, we did was that we reached out to um, all our membership, so the CGAs, and sort of said that we, we're really keen to support you with your endeavours as you look at solutions with cities in your in your area. And at this stage, so that was kind of like a wide, wide range. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I did a presentation to our members at our General Assembly in Singapore just under three weeks ago and gave them an update that we're still working across four of our six regions with some potential solutions. 
we are not at the stage where we have a, a, any, any government or host saying we're ready to do this. They are preliminary discussions, but it's encouraging, you know, whether or not they turn into um, a 2026 slash 27. I'll just talk a little bit about that. Our board said that we'll be flexible in terms of it's, it's not a long time away, 2026. Um, so, you know, to having to try and create some flexibility for that or um, a solution for a longer period of time. So we are having some discussions across four of our six regions. Um, and then at the same time, I, I think I was new and we were coming to the end of um, a long-term strategic plan called Transformation 2020, um, 2022, which was a big piece of work by the prior uh, chief executive on where the movement needed to go. It was time for a new strategic plan. So in my first year, I spent um, with the team a considerable amount of time listening to our wide stakeholders about who we are, what we are, and what we needed to do not just at games, we might talk a little bit about more what else the Commonwealth Games does, but, but um, and in doing that, we got a clear message from our membership and uh, past ho hosts and future hosts is that we needed to reimagine what does the games of the future look like. We're about to be 100 years old, and that's a long time running multi-sport events, and, the, and the, the world has moved on. We are a very young population in the Commonwealth. So we started an exercise that was always in our strategic plan, but we brought it forward um, in, during our Commonwealth Youth Games in Trinidad-Tobago this year of starting to look at what might the games of the future look differently. You're a really tenured leader, and you know, I was listening to something the other week around it's the balance of the heritage of something like the Commonwealth, which has a huge amount of heritage and what you're talking here around sort of disrupting and innovating to bring it into the here and now. How have you, how do you think about that? I mean, you've had similar roles at World Rugby. You know, how, yep. how do you actually think about having that balance of heritage and innovation? Yeah, well, I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely was a disruptor at World Rugby for five years. And it's been great to see how they, they have continued to, to, to take on some of those those things that are just a little bit different than they would have done in the past. I mean, I, I think that the first of all, you need to take people with you. I mean, you, you, you can't come into any organization and, and not spend considerable amount of time understanding why people are at where they're at. So what is the history? What is, and quite often, you know, people come in and they've got all their ideas and they just don't think and listen. And then you need to kind of set a test. Well, you know, well, why? And in a, in a non-confrontational way, um, you know, sort of have a look at what people are doing around the, the, the world in, in terms of good practice. And w in rugby, it was within other sports or within the Commonwealth movement. It's about sort of what are the games doing and how are they evolving? And then bring in your stakeholders to work with you. And so you've got to do that, that with people as opposed to not. And the rugby one, I, it's funny, I was looking at it the other day. I worked very, very closely um, for a long period of time when I was in rugby with Sarai Behrman, who's mm -hmm. the chief women's officer for football. She's, you know, many people don't know, she's a, she's a Kiwi as well. So she was appointed two weeks after I was in, I was rugby, she was, she was football. And I gave her, I didn't know her at that stage. And I gave her a call and I said, hey, we should meet, we should go through this together. You can have lots more money than I'm ever going to have. <laughs> so, you know, we can test some things out in the FIFA world. But what, what I did, which was maybe a bit different from, from Soraya, although she's made huge progress in, in FIFA, is um, I decided not to, at the stage that I was at, not to create a woman's unit. That I really felt that the only way I was going to drive the change that needed to happen from within rugby and around the globe was to make sure that I got the chief executive on board, Brett Gosper at the time, and Bill Beaumont, and get and work across all the other internal people to get them to be responsible and accountable for driving the change. So I was kind of like the ringmaster. 
and, and got to a stage where people were comfortable with what they were doing in commercial, whether what they were doing in, in um, high performance or, or what they The only area that I really drove myself was leadership because it was dramatic. We needed a major change at World Rugby in leadership when I first started. Not, that's not a, as much of a challenge um, in, in the Commonwealth Games movement. When I first started, we had a woman president, woman chief executive, and a very much a balanced board. And we still have a, a, you know, a, great, a really good gender um, balance in, in some of our positions. But when I did look around the General Assembly, we've got a way to go in terms of some of our members. How important is it for you as you go through this process, which has sort of landed, landed on your desk, yeah. to come up with a format that works for more places? You've, since I 2002, I think it's only the Delhi yeah. Games in 2010 that have been outside the UK and Australia. How much is that part of your thinking as you're sort of mapping out? It is totally part of my thinking. But to do that, there's a radical rethink that needs to happen to the Games. And that's where we're going to go in terms of, you um, know, and I don't think we're unique in, with regards to some of the challenges that multi-sport events have. But, you know, to bring down the cost, to bring down the delivery model to a state where more than those large countries who have, you know, undoubtedly, you know, we've, we've heard of, of the huge legacy and return of investment that has happened in games of the past. So we, we know we do the work on a, um, with Pricewaterhouse on a games value framework and we, we really feel very confident on the return on investment. But to bring the games into something that is able to be taken across the Commonwealth and that's what people want. I think it is a multi-country approach, um, but we're seeing more and more of that very, very successfully. And it's, a, it's about a long-term understanding, you know, where are some of those countries at with their sports policy? So the things that are legacy related in terms of facilities and, and participation levels and performance levels. So how can we actually help in the long term at the same time as using an event that that leverages off that? So it's definitely a Caribbean and Asian also possibly, but definitely Caribbean and Africa. We need to look at how that can happen. Let's dig into an example, uh, and you mentioned Trinidad, host yep. of the Youth Commonwealth Games earlier this year. What does that sort of look like from a host perspective, and how are you sort of mapping that onto what a future uh, fully-fledged Commonwealth Games host might look like? So um, I'll just correct you, because it was Trinidad and Tobago is the Trinidad country. Trinidad and, and Tobago, and, you know, yeah. It, that it was it was one of the first that we actually ran a games across Twin Islands, so that was that was an interesting challenge for a, a relatively small member to put on such a huge event in a very short period of time. So they only had a year lead into that games. What I would say is that the Caribbean um, uh, national you know committees of national Olympic committees were really really who are mostly members of the Commonwealth Games Association as well were very supportive of Trinidad and Tobago and doing what they could to support them in that in that exercise. And I, you know, it was a, it was a, a steep learning curve. You know, we, we come in when it's a youth games and provide uh, some of our senior staff to actually work with people so that they've actually, they've um, developed that knowledge transfer to do events that are above and beyond. Now, whether or not Trinidad Tobago would put their hand up on their own for a, a, um, a, a full blown Commonwealth Games, I think it would have to be in partnership with others. And, and is that five, six, seven, countries potentially coming together? At what point does that kind of truly regional model become simply too complicated to, to manage? I think it depends on what region. I mean, if you're looking at an Africa sort of situation, you might be talking about three countries. Um, but Trinidad, uh, my, mind you, in saying that, I have to say that m the Commonwealth was so impressed with the facilities 
that existed in Trinidad and Tobago. I mean, I think quite often you go to some of these the smaller nations and you think, oh, you know, how are they possibly going to do this? But the Haley Crossford Stadium was am amazing. So they have fantastic facilities. So they could, they, the issue is, is, is the finances that would be associated with that um, and how we would be able to support that would be a significant step up. And, and actually, is what this all needs a, a bit of a reset in terms of stakeholder expectations, fans, broadcasters, athletes, partners. Is that sort of what you're looking for as you seek to reimagine what these games look like long term? Well, I think all of those are significant stakeholders that we have to work with to come up with the solutions. So whether it's thinking through with, you know, we have a, a very active athletes commission who happens to be chaired by someone from the Caribbean, Brendan Williams, <laughs> whether it's, it's working with our athletes or it's working with, with media, or it's working with potential hosts to sort of say, what is possible? And in, in, you know, that is one of the things that we tried to do in the, the there was a document that was produced pre-me, a 26, 20, 30 roadmap, which said, let's be more flexible and look at where, what the hosts want out of the games. But you need to do that in, in, in um, you know, you're not a, a games without sports. So you need to actually be working with your international sports federations on what they think is possible as well. But I think we are seeing more and more dispersed games. Thinking about the Commonwealth more broadly, there's obviously a lot of discussion at a higher level than the Commonwealth Games about the relevance of the Commonwealth and yep. how does that play into how you set a strategy, how you think about how you shape the games and the future of the games and does it impact your strategy, the broader conversation around the Commonwealth? Yes, it does. Um, you know, acutely aware of different people having different opinions about the Commonwealth. Um, we work closely with the Commonwealth Secretariat, which is, you know, it, which pulls together a myriad of uh, Commonwealth organisations that do fantastic um, work for the Commonwealth movement. The movement is growing. So while people, you know, I've heard people talk about relevance, um, we um, brought on uh, Gabon and Togo at the last General Assembly just three years ago. So two more members. So we're now at 70, 74. Um, and, but I think that one of the really important things about the Commonwealth movement is it speaks to each other. So, you know, maybe a little bit unlike some of the other international organizations, we spend a lot of time understanding what the issues are from the past, creating opportunities to talk about those issues in a meaningful way, um, whether that's within the games or within the wider, wider movement, um, so that we can learn and understand from them. So Trinidad and Tobago games was a classic case of, you know, there's, there was talk about what are we doing about reparation and some of the, the, the perceived negative parts of the Commonwealth in the past. So, you know, rather than shy away from it, you, it, it hasn't gone away, is that we created opportunities for people to talk about that stuff. And so the opening ceremonies was the day after Emancipation Day in Trinidad and Tobago. We ran a, a workshop with athletes with, you know, in partnership with the International Slavery Museum in um, Liverpool, where we talked about emancipation, what does it mean, gave the, the young people an opportunity to actually talk about, and our members, not just young people, our members to talk about it and to, you know, and to work through, you know, what are the things that we need to do going forward. At the, this General Assembly, one of the things that was um, agreed was that we had been developing uh, over the last couple of years, a reconciliation um, charter for working with Indigenous people through sport. And that it was a, a huge piece of work over a period of time with our members to talk about how do we actually address some of the, 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 the major issues of the past, um, knowing that sport is a mechanism where you can discuss those in a non-threatening way, but how do we use sport to actually address some of those issues going forward?
And is that the answer you give when you hear people, and you will be aware there are people, who say that the Commonwealth Games has sort of reached the end of its natural life and this is, you know, this, this challenge around hosts is sort of emblematic of a, a wider move to irrelevance? Yep. Um, well, I, what I usually those people aren't people who were in Birmingham, because, and they because, probably don't say it to your face. And they, no, sometimes they say it to my face, but but they, you know, I, I think that that is when I when I got on board, well, I was really fortunate. We had a Birmingham Commonwealth Games just around the corner, and that really blew people out of the park in terms of what happened, what was delivered there, in terms of the the, the legacy, the return on investment, in terms of trade and tourism, the the pride that that brought to that city. That. You know, people who went there, even some of the skeptical media were absolutely excited about the games. We then listened. So, you know, l with those things on board, I spent 10 months listening to, you know, getting people. What are the nuggets of gold? What are the criticisms? What are the things that you think that we need to, to do to actually develop a strategy that we launched in June, which is called Commonwealth United? And that was really clear, um, a really clear mandate from... Um, our membership, but the wider stakeholder group of where they saw the Commonwealths in the future. And it wasn't just about the games. So the games is clearly, and you know, we have got six pillars in that games, in the, and, and it's clearly one of the major purposes that we do is to deliver an impactful and purposeful games. Um, but it is also about using sport for, um, for equity and social change around the Commonwealth. And we do a lot of stuff. We have a sport development team that work with our members on, on programs for you know, GAPS, which looks at how do we actually deal with the the um, inclusion of athletes with disabilities into our programs or um, we have a program um, called Equip which deals on young people helping them actually have careers in sport. We have another really uh, um, very social uh, program called Game Changers where we work on with our members and athletes on everything from dealing with disadvantaged youth in countries through water projects but using sport as a, as a concept. So this, the strategy talked about the wider importance of the Commonwealth sport movement. We like to think of it as one of the most positive manifestations of the Commonwealth. It brings people together. They do enjoy the games, but the membership is also committed to doing more than the games. Let's talk a little bit about leadership because yep. you've talked there about lifetime in sport and you are one of the most tenured leaders within the sports industry. How much does it matter to you that you are one of the most powerful women leaders in sport? Do, do you care about the gender aspect? You know... I, uh, it's kind of interesting. I've been asked that question at various stages along yeah. my um, career. I remember, you know, when I was managing high performance in New Zealand, there wasn't very many women in, in mm. that space. And it wasn't really until I started working at World Rugby that I realised, same as all of you, is that I had significant unconscious bias about women in leadership. Like, that was such a wake-up call to me in terms of, realizing that the world, according to Katie Sadler's career, was not the same as the world for everyone else. So at that point in time, I kind of thought, thought, I need to do more. I need to do more for women. So I really spent a considerable amount of those five years in, in rugby challenging and addressing the leadership issue right. for other women. You know, when I started at World Rugby, 27% of the participation across the globe were women, and you had a council made up of 30 men. Not a single woman, not a single woman. In a you know great um, Sir Bill Beaumont um, realized you know he needed to make a change. Brett Gosper needed to make a change, and they worked with me. So by the end of the first year, we brought seventeen women onto that council. Did you have to push for that kind of radical? Yeah. Change in. But makeup? I had a champion in Bill, 
you know, so right. he was great. He knew we needed to make a difference there. He was a, a strong supporter of women's rugby. And I, several times during my, my um, period of time, he did dem demonstrated some things that were above and beyond that mm. were fantastic that he needed to do. So I guess up until then, I just didn't, I, I hadn't realized um, how hard it was for everyone else. And that sounds really, because mm. I, I was really fortunate. I was brought up with a, in a family where my parents, um, supported everything that I wanted to do. And mm. I just didn't really feel I had those barriers, but those barriers are there. So then I sort of set about um, working with World Rugby around the globe to change the number of women who are involved in leaderships. And they have a program now, which is sponsored by Capgemini. And it's, it's an executive leadership scholarship program. And that program where we started off with bringing on 12 women a year, we're kind of specifically focused on women who were just about there, you know, just right. about there. And I would say that most of them are there now. But I do want to be in a situation, and I know there's a lot of people that say that, you would like to be in a situation where you're not called the first woman yeah. all the time. I'm sure. Particularly, you're not, a, you're not an American president. You're not the first woman. So you do want to get to the stage where there are more women in these kind of roles. And when you were talking there about looking for leadership, and you, yep. you know, were really intentional about that, what kind of attributes were you looking for when you're looking for great leaders, thinking about not necessarily gender specific, but the attributes that you particularly look for when you're looking for someone in a leadership role? Yep. I think the most important thing is they need to care. They need to care about people and they need to care about what they do and passionately care. And, I, you know, I'm, I mean, who gets to have jobs like ours? I mean, how can you not care about it? Otherwise, I used to always have little, um, you know, chills when people asked me what I did. And I said, well, I'm responsible for developing women's rugby around the world. I mean, who gets a better job like yeah. that? And now it's even, even wider in terms of, you know, the Commonwealth Games and the movement. So you need to care. You need to be collaborative. You know, it's not about you. So it is about bringing people with you and building teams that, um, that you can create that kind of common vision so that everyone knows the, the direction of where we want to go and that you hold yourselves accountable for um, as a group. But it is about getting, you know, a great, a great group of people. It's about taking some risks sometimes. And it's, it's, it's kind of also about being really authentic. And what does that mean, authenticity? That means what you see is what you get here. I don't, I don't become different when I'm dealing with my, my family as opposed to the great people that I'm working with inside or on my board or any of the significant stakeholders around the world that I'm trying to influence. I'm open, I'm honest. Values are really important to me. So you know, there, are, there are certain things that I would not do, but if I say I'm gonna do something, I will do it. And I would, if I don't, then I absolutely need to be held accountable for that. So mm -hmm. you know, I will do everything I can in a transparent and open way to bring people with me on a journey. Two more questions. One, my unscientific analysis suggests you are one of several really senior leaders in the sports industry to come from New Zealand. Ooh. What is it about New Zealand and the sports industry? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I, I do call myself the Commonwealth kid. I was actually, although I sound like this, I was born in Scotland. So I was, I was born in Aberdeen and I was raised in Canada, which is the accent. Um, my father was Australian. My mother was Scottish. My grandfather was South African and my great grandfather was from Ireland. So I'm kind of all over the place. But there's something special about New Zealand. New Zealand is a, a little powerhouse of people. Um, you know, whether it's the, you know, small country syndrome, but there is nothing that they don't believe they can do on a world stage. And, I, you know, I, and I'll give you an example. So when, when I was given the task of working with um, the Prime Minister set up a task force when Sydney got the Olympics 
and said, you know, A, we want to make the most of this. This is going to be our home games. Um, so, you know, Katie, you know, do something to make this happen. Um, but more importantly, we wanted to perform. We want to perform. And at that stage, we had no high performance system. And I think this is probably typical of what New Zealanders do, is that they then invested in me to go around the world and look at who was doing great things mm. and who was, who was not doing great things and then come back and say, okay, um, so I've had a look at the best practice. We're a small country. We cannot compete on numbers. We can't do the churn and burn because we haven't got the masses of people that some of the countries have. And we certainly don't have the commercial um, sponsorship based in New Zealand that can, or the government money to actually invest. So we needed to do something different. And we did. And so, you know, we created a system that was, was very unique. And, and now it's, it's probably one of the top 10 countries in the world in terms of Olympic performances. And from a leadership perspective, I think that's the same. You know, they are people that, that do not sit back. They look at where great practice is and they do everything they can to come up with something that suits New Zealand, but actually understands, you know, who is, who's leading the trends. Early part of 2024 feels like it's decision time for 2026 yeah. or 27, as yeah. you touched on earlier. Somewhere locked in your desk drawer, do you have a, a best case and worst case scenario mapped out? Look, I just think they're alternative. It's not necessarily best and, and worst. There are, there are alternative models that we're looking at. You know, it's interesting. I'm heading down to New Zealand at the end of January. It's the 50th anniversary of the Christchurch Commonwealth Games. And so that's another country. They've put an expression of interest for people say, well, where's the movement going? So they put in an expression of interest for 2034. So talking to them about where they're at, what's, what's the thinking. Um, hey, you know, there's a lot of people working incredibly hard 24-7 right now, exploring every single opportunity. But I am excited about by the piece of work that we're doing that looks at something, you know, potentially completely different. And whether or not there's a combination of both, I mean, that would be great. And so if we, we get to a stage where we have a, we have a, uh, a potential host that it is actually going to bring something to the world and the Commonwealth that actually shows some of the thinking that we've been doing creatively. I think that would be exciting. Good luck. Katie Sadler, thank you very much. Thank you.